Today we are in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, so go ahead and start. Look at that nice little slide that we had made up here. The book of Zephaniah is where we are. If you, if you weren't here last week, you've missed one-third uh, of what will be our study of the book of Zephaniah. There's only three chapters in the book of Zephaniah. Small book, but with a big message. Uh, as we've seen, a very, very important message uh, about, not one we all love to hear about, but about God's coming judgment upon sin in the world. And again, you may recall that event is referred to re repetitively in the Bible as the day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord will come and God will judge sin. Now, please remember this uh, by way of review, that the day of the Lord refers to this. Here's the definition. It is a span of time during which God personally intervenes in history, either directly or indirectly, to accomplish some aspect of his plan. That's the day of the Lord, God's direct in intervention into the, uh, the history of man. And as we learned, sometimes when the word is used, it's used about two, or the phrase is used about 235 times in the Bible. Sometimes when the phrase is used, it's meant to describe a specific thing that is about to happen five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, a prophet is speaking into. So for instance, the term the day of the Lord could be applied to the destruction of the city of Nineveh in 612 BC, and it is used to describe that. Other times the phrase, the term, is used to describe those end time events, which the book of Revelation, for instance, speaks so much about or portions of the book of Daniel, or the book of Joel, or other places. Now the challenging thing with the phrase, the day of the Lord, is sometimes the very same prophet is talking about a near coming fulfillment of the day of the Lord, and in the same set of verses is speaking about a far fulfillment of the day of the Lord, or a more complete fulfillment of the day of the Lord. And so that happens in this book of Zephaniah, so we'll try and point out those instances when it does occur. As I said, there's three chapters to the book. There's three sections to the book. They don't necessarily follow the chapters. The first section we looked at last week, it's where God pronounces that there is a coming judgment specifically upon the nation of Judah. Remember the southern kingdom of the Jewish people that God pronounces a coming judgment on them. The second section of the book, which we'll highlight today, it runs from verse 4 of chapter 2 to about verse 8 of chapter 3, and that is where God is going to name specific cities and specific nations of which his judgment is going to be poured out. And then the end of the book, which we'll get to when we're next together, is almost a surprising message. It's a message of hope. So here's this whole book about judgment, and then you have this final chapter, a message of hope, where God is going to restore the faithful remnant of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, in the days to come, following the days of his judgment. I want to do a quick sort of overview of where we're going today, a skimming, if you will. So look at verse 4. It says this, Now for Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. So a whole bunch of names, probably the most familiar name, you call it out, it's the name Gaza. Today we, we know of the Gaza Strip, and some of you may know where the Gaza Strip is located. Uh, it is in the southwestern coastland of the nation of Israel, that area down there that's called the Gaza Strip, just north of 
the country of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula and so on. So we, we know that name, the Gaza Strip. Each of those cities that are mentioned there, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Ashdod, they were Philistine cities uh, in the times of our Bible. All right, so they're all Philistine cities. So verse 4 begins a pronunciation of judgment against those Philistine cities that are on the southwest coast of the nation of Israel. Okay, so that's the first one. You look in verse 5 there, it talks about the Karathites. The Karathites was an ancient name used to describe the Philistine people. It's connected with, you remember that island city of Crete that we learned about in our study of the book of Acts? The Philistine people migrated from the island of Crete to the coast of Israel. And when they were in the land of Crete, they'd be, they would go by the name or went by the name of the Carathites. All right, so we're talking about the same people, the Philistine people there. All right, so that's the first people that uh, will be designated for judgment. Look over at verse 8 for a moment. Verses 8 through 11, it begins this way. I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. And so the next two groups of people that are spoken of are the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the Moabites and the Ammonites, they are today in the nation of Jordan, or what is today the nation of Jordan. That's Israel's western border. So Philistines, the south, uh, excuse me, southwestern border, uh, the Moabites, the eastern side there, um, the inland side. Um, he'll talk about them. Look at verse 12. He speaks of the Cushites. Your Bible might use a different word. What do you got? Ethiopian, same people, all right? The Ethiopians or the Cushites in verse 12 are going to be addressed. Most people have heard of the nation of Ethiopia there, a large nation in East Africa. We'll talk about them in a moment. And then you go down to verse 13, and you see there it says, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And we remember that the Assyrian Empire was immediately to Israel's north and extended way up uh, to the north, even heading toward places like Iraq and beyond. All right, so uh, as you sort of make your way around, he addresses the nations that are on the west, the nations that are on the east, the nations that are on the north, the nations that are down into the south, and he says that there is a day of reckoning for their sin that is coming against each one of those nations. Remember, the theme of this book is the day of the Lord the special intervention into the history of man, either directly or indirectly, in judgment. And so each of these places are mentioned here. So that's sort of our overview. Let's go back and look a little more closely at them, starting in verse 2. It says, Now for Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the sea coast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For, their Lord their God, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Central theme of the book again, coming judgment, the day of the Lord. And specifically, it is a coming judgment against 
the nation of Judah. However, that being said, that doesn't mean that judgment wasn't also going to come to those pagan nations that were in and around the nation of Judah. Nations, interestingly enough, that God would use to bring judgment on the Jewish people. Remember the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity. So nations that God would use, but at the same time, nations that God was going to judge for their own rebelliousness and disobedience. And as we've seen, the first group mentioned are the Philistines, those from the cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. The Philistines, as you know, and those of you that have been attending our midweek Bible study or Wednesday night Bible study over the last couple of years, as we've been looking at the history of the Jewish people coming into the land, the promised land of Israel, one thing we remember from that study and, and other studies that you might have been involved with is just the consistent pest, we'll call them, that the Philistines were to the Jewish people. How they, the Phil, we saw how the, Philist, the Jewish people, they would farm, they'd come right up to this time of year and it's harvest and everything is great, and then the Philistines would come in and steal all their produce. They, they were just this consistent problem for the Jewish people. David set his sights against them and had great victory, but they weren't completely sort of wiped out of the, the land of, of Israel, and so they just continually were this perennial enemy that harassed the Jews. Look at verse 6 and 7. It points out where they were specifically at, which is just really, really interesting to me, right there on the seacoast. That's where they are today, um, particularly in the land of Gaza and how they harassed the Jews from that location. Now today, we don't call that, that, that group of people the Philistines. Today, we refer to them by a very similar name. You know the name? Can you think of it? The Palestinians. Um, kind of interesting, I think, here. Now, this is not to say that all Palestinians uh, hate all Jewish people. As a matter of fact, many citizens of the nation of Israel are Palestinian in descent, and they have a very good relationship. But there are some Palestinians that are a problem for the nation of Israel, uh, and uh, the Gaza Strip is one of those locations with the Hamas terrorist group and things like that. And so this is the exact area of land that we're speaking of. Notice the Lord, he pronounces a very strong pronouncement of judgment against them. Now, Zephaniah, I called him the, the what of Old Testament prophets last week? The blank, blank. The Joe Friday of Old Testament prophets. And the young people, your homework assignment was to look up who Joe Friday was. Uh, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, our friend here, Zephaniah, doesn't, you know, like beat around the bush and try and massage anybody's ego. He gets right to it. And notice what he says here. He says, woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan. And, I, and this is what he says. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. He goes on in verse 6. He speaks of the land, that it's going to become nothing more than sort of a pasture land for sort of the roaming shepherds' uh, flocks and their shepherds that are with them. If you look at verse 7, he speaks of the land becoming the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. Remember that phrase. That's an important phrase, the remnant of the house of Judah. That's what the entire last chapter is going to be about. So it's a very significant phrase that you're going to want to sort of file away for a bit. Now, much of this judgment has already come against the Philistine people, but not in entirety. 
And this is one of those examples where there's a near fulfillment and the judgment has come on those cities, but there's still that far fulfillment that is yet to be fulfilled and to be completed, particularly as it talks about there how Israel is going to possess, the, the remnant of Israel is going to possess their land. That's still to come. Next group that are addressed starts in verse 8. It's the Moabites and the Ammonites. Let's read about them. He says, I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. So we started with the Philistines, in the southwest, on the southwest edge of Israel's land, now he turns his attention to Judah's east. And on the east are the nations of Moab, or at least were the nations of Moab and Ammon. And he compares them to a familiar set of cities that many of us are familiar with. He compares them to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which you remember from your study of the book of Genesis, was destroyed as a result of their sin. He says these cities will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. He promises to judge the Moabites and the Ammonites and to bring about a perpetual desolation. Where are Sodom and Gomorrah located in the world today? Archaeologists can't really tell because of how completely it was destroyed. They're, they have found, and some of you know it was destroyed basically with a fire and a brimstone, they have found all of these archaeological finds of sort of uh, like burnt um, stuff um, there that is sort of under the sand. Was that helpful? Uh, did, that, did they do it for you? And they said perhaps it's in this area here just south of the Dead Sea, but they, they re can't really even tell for certain. And so a perpetual desolation. Now, again, near and far. You know many Moabites these days, folks? You know many Ammonites these days? You probably don't, but you probably have heard of Ammon, Jordan, which is where the Ammonites lived. And so there was a near, but there will be a far destruction, a more total, more complete destruction that will come. It talks about there how Israel, in verse uh, 9, the end of verse 9, how the remnant of my people will plunder them and the survivors of my nation will, shall possess them. And how Israel will, at some point in time, acquire that land, millennial kingdom speaking. Now, no reason was given for why the Philistines were guilty. A reason is guilty for, or given for why the Moabites and the Ammonites are guilty. If you're really, really interested, what did the Philistines do wrong? You can go to the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, it, it tells us, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So you can go there and you can look at that. But we have reason for why the Moabites are being judged. We have reason for why the Ammonites are being judged here in this passage. Look at verse 8. He says, I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. Now, this isn't, you're ugly. You know, they're not just making fun of them or something like this. This is taunting them and boasting against them in their weakness. 
And so when other nations came in and hurt the Jewish people, the Moabites and the Ammonites saw that, mocked them in their defeat, and then would physically move in and take advantage of them. And the Lord says, I saw that. He says in verse 8 how they taunted God's people and they made boast against their territory. Made boast against their territory. It's an interesting phrase, which means they moved in and took some from them for themselves. The Lord says, I've taken notice of that. Down in verse 10, you see there, he speaks of the nation's pride. Again, it talks about how they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And the Lord says, I saw it the way you treated my people. Remember, the Jewish people are referred to in the scripture as the apple of God's eyes. And so the way people treat his people, even to this day, the Lord sees and the Lord takes notice. He says in verse 11, he says, the Lord will be awesome against them. That's also an interesting phrase. It's a phrase which means he will inspire great fear or awe. The Lord will be awesome against them. And when his judgment comes, it will inspire great fear in the Moabite and the Ammonite people. God was going to glorify himself among the nations. And one way that he was going to do that was to bring the idols of those nations, which sadly found its way into Israel, and even the Israelites, the Jewish people, worshiped those false idols, but he was going to bring the idols of those nations down low. They were exalted by the people. He was going to bring them down low. Again, I'm reminded of that passage in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 5, where the Philistine people had taken the Ark of the Covenant and set it up in their temple to their god, Dagon. And every day when they came into that temple, Dagon, who was supposed to be presiding over this temple, was fallen down on his face. He brought them down low, in that case, very, very literally. Here's the words in verse 11. He says, for he, the Lord, will famish all the gods of the earth, bring them to nothing, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. He was going to expose those false gods for what they really were. And that's as simple as they were false. And he was going to make clear to the world that he alone is God, and that he alone is the one to be bowed down to as God. And as we've seen in some of our instances already, this too experienced a partial fulfillment. As those nations were brought low, it will experience its complete fulfillment in the millennium. As we've talked about mentioning it, that 1,000-year period of Christ's righteous reign upon the earth which we read about in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. Next, God turns his attention to the south. He was in the southwest. He was on the east. Now he goes to the extreme south. And just a quick mention, he said, You also, O Cushites, O Ethiopians, shall be slain by my sword. And so these refer to those, the Cushites, or that great uh, East African empire Um, of Ethiopia. Today, it's nowhere near what it once was as far as its magnitude and its influence uh, in the world. This passage here may be referring to basically all sub-Saharan Africa, because Egypt kind of, they were the empire to the north uh, of of Ethiopia, so it could be referring to all sub-Saharan Africa. It's interesting, the Ethiopians weren't ever really great enemies 
to the Jewish people. They had a, a pretty good relationship with the Jewish people. There, there were some um, concepts or some ideas, maybe fanciful, that uh, there were direct descendants of King Solomon. Um, some people suggest that. There, there's a lot of Ethiopians that adopted the Jewish faith and even today practice the Jewish faith. And so the Ethiopians didn't really have a bad relationship with the Jews. And so that's why it's kind of surprising that there's this judgment that is pronounced against them. When you look at all the other judgments, were pronounced against people that took advantage of the weakness of the Jewish people when they were struggling. And so the, the, what some commentators think is we're basically referring to anything south of Egypt. So that whole, all the way down to South Africa uh, and all of the peoples that make up that place. And so the idea then is that we're talking about a judgment that's going to come over the entire world. And so we're talking about Africa, we're talking about Europe, we're talking about Asia, we're talking about the United States and, and the Americas and so on. That's what uh, has been suggested. Again, we only have one small sentence really about it. And so it's hard to make a lot of statements about it but they are mentioned, uh, the extreme south of Israel. The last group Zephaniah draws our attention to is to Judah's north. So there's sort of this wheel, and we're, doing, we're just sort of going around the wheel. And now to the north, and you have the Assyrians, and it begins in verse 13. And he says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He'll make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert, or desert, I should say. I'm sorry. It's... <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little hungry this morning. <laughs> Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold. For her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city, exultant city, that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Again, that circle of judgment is sort of complete. And it talks about coming against Assyria, uh, specifically against the capital city of Assyria, the city of Nineveh which you may remember from our study of the book of Nahum was all about that, uh, and how the city of Nineveh, this great city of this great empire, for 700 years, the most powerful empire on the world, at least in that portion of the world, and how in 612 BC the city fell. Even as its leaders partied inside, believing no one's ever going to get inside of these walls, and how it was destroyed to such a magnitude that for thousands of years, people doubted, I don't think Nineveh really existed. That's sort of like the underwater city of Atlantis. I don't know if it really existed until archaeologists uncovered it and went to work and completely uncovered it. And once again proved the veracity of the scriptures. Here, he says, they will be destroyed. 612 B.C. fulfilled. Why? He tells us why Assyria would be judged. We have sort of a, an allusion to the nation's sin. Look at verse 15. He says, this is the exalted city that lived securely. And so their pride, their arrogance, no one but us. Back in the book of Nahum, we learned some other things about the exalted city. 
we learned in chapter one of that book that their idolatry was rampant. I'll read it to you. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. And so idolatry was rampant there in the nation. In chapter three of the book of Nahum, their rampant violence was pointed out. You may remember if you were with us. He says, woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse, and so on. They stumble over their bodies, it said. You remember they would take the, the bodies of the defeated, the heads primarily, and they would pile them up at the, the entrance to a city, like a pyramid of sorts, so people could just see. Remember how people were f- so fearful of Nineveh, of uh, the Assyrians, they would give up at just the report that Nineveh was thinking of coming and attacking them. They would get word and say, whatever you want, just don't come here. You know, you can have anything you want. They were violent, rampantly violent. In chapter 3 of Nahum, verse 4, it talks about their witchcraft. It talks about their sorcery. So these are all the reasons why, in just a very quick mention here in the book of Zephaniah, all the reasons why the Assyrians would be judged. They were strong. They were confident. They had been so for hundreds and hundreds of years. Look what they say in verse 15 of our passage. It says, This is the exalted city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. First off, anybody that says, I am, and kind of leaves it at that, we should be on our guard against, because we know that's a name that only applies to the Lord. And yet they would say, I am, and there is no one else. They're proud. They're arrogant. Nobody will come against us. I was reminded as I read this of sort of that back and forth that took place in the book of 2 Kings. You remember, I mentioned his name last week, King Hezekiah, a good king in the nation of Israel. And the Assyrians were threatening to come against. They already attacked the north. They were, and taken them away into captivity. Now they were threatening to come against the southern kingdom uh, where Hezekiah ruled down in Jerusalem. And they come to the edge of the city of Jerusalem around the wall and they begin to taunt the inhabitants of the city. Here's just a, a feel of what they said. Verse 23 of 2 Kings 18, they said, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them, like we're able. They're making fun of them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants, when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. They say, you can't fight us. I can give you 2,000 horsemen. If you even put 2,000 soldiers up on top of those horsemen or cavalrymen up top of them, you can't. They go on. Listen to this one. Uh, same chapter. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah, your king, when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Uh-oh. This is bad news for Assyria. Because now they're basically taunting the Lord. He says, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? You feel their pride? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? That's northern Israel. Who who, uh, among all the gods of the land have delivered their lands out of my hand that you think that your God, the Lord, will deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. You sense the pride? The Assyrians, they were strong and confident, but God knew 
how to bring them down low. Uh, actually, we know that while uh, Assyria was down uh, in Judah threatening to attack Jerusalem, that there was ru rumors of sort of a coup that was taking place back in Assyria. And so that many of the army had to leave to go back to that. We also know from our study of the scripture that the next morning when Assyria woke, when the army woke up, 185,000 of them had died in the night. No particular, nobody went in and killed them, stabbed them, whatever. The Lord intervened and they were slain in the spirit, so to speak, to use that expression that some people like to use. 185,000. The Lord knew how to bring this prideful people low. And again, in 612 BC, he fulfilled that principle that we see repeatedly in the scripture. And that's the principle that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 6 says that. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First Peter chapter 3, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That verse that's quoted from the Old Testament, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. These words here in Zephaniah aren't specifically spoken to us about this judgment on Assyria for its pride, but I certainly think it can serve as a lesson to us and a warning to us. God knows how to bring down those that exalt themselves against him and his people. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. May that serve as a warning to each of us. Now, I want to continue into chapter 3. Just a few of the verses. Starting in verse 1, it says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy, and they do violence to the law. Now, the way chapter 2 ended, we would think we're talking about some other foreign nation again. All right, so we did the southwest, we did the, the deep south, we did the east, we did the north. Which direction do we go now? And so you, the way it ended, we almost think he's speaking of another nation, or maybe we're still talking about Nineveh. However, we've moved on from Nineveh, and now we're talking about the Jewish people. We're talking about Judah. And so in actuality, it's the people of Judah that the Lord is exactly speaking of, and he's continuing to talk about the day of the Lord and now applying it to the people of Judah. He shifts his focus from the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Assyrians, and he shifts it to Jerusalem herself. Sadly, a city that should never have needed the Lord's special intervention in the form of judgment into its affairs. Remember, that's the definition of the day of the Lord, the Lord's special intervention into the history of man, either directly or indirectly in judgment. Judah should have never needed that. The northern kingdom, Israel, should have never needed that. You and I, as followers of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we should never need God's direct intervention into our lives in judgment. And remember, this concept of judgment in the scripture, we'll use a different word, this concept of discipline. 
Well, God would never judge me. Well, yeah, if you're using the word in that way, but would he ever discipline you? You better hope so, because the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. But ideally, we would never need to be disciplined. Amen? Would you agree? And so the, the children of Israel here, the Jewish people, particularly that nation of Judah, should have never needed God's special intervention, but sadly they did, because they went their own way and they rebelled. And so now they're being called out, even as those other nations that didn't know God were being called out. Here's some of the reasons why we know that this is Judah, okay, unless you think I'm just making it up, because the word Judah is never used in these first four verses. But here's some of the reasons why we know we're talking about Judah. Look at verse 2. He says, she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And that's the Lord we're talking about. Well, which nations of the world had God as their Lord? It was Judah. It was Israel. Verse 4, it speaks of her prophets, her priests, the things that are holy, it speaks of. And then it speaks of doing violence to the law. That's not talking about the general law that is out there. It's talking about the law of Moses, which was entrusted to the Jewish people. We're talking about the nation of Judah. We're specifically talking about the capital city, the city of Jerusalem. And verse 1 begins very ominously by saying, woe to her. It says, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. If you're reading the King James, your version says, uh, woe to her who is filthy and polluted. And filth and pollution, when those terms are used, particularly in the older translations like the King James, they're almost always connected with idolatry. And so Israel here is being called out, the Jews here are being called out for their idolatry. They were a privileged people called out to be in special relationship with God and they put that aside to embrace their false idols or the false idols of the nations that were around them. Sadly, their hearts were led astray, and pretty soon after, the rest of their lives followed. And their lives were astray, and their lifestyle would become, as it says, rebellious and defiled. Zephaniah is addressing that. He goes on in verse 2. Now he's going to give a fourfold indictment against Israel. He says, she listens to no voice. Israel wouldn't listen. Goes on there. Uh, it says that God brought correction, discipline, the purpose of which was to reform the people. You know, so why does God bring discipline in our lives? Is it just, you made me mad, now I'm going to make you hurt or suffer? That's not why God brings discipline in our lives. He brings discipline. The root of the word discipline is the word disciple. He brings discipline in our lives to teach us to get us back on track in the way that he would have us to go. You think, remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son went wandering off. He spent his father's wealth. He got involved in all sorts of things. He ran out of money. And then he began to experience the pain of his difficulty. God sort of gave him over to it. So you want, you can have it. And when he experienced that pain of his difficulty, it says he came to his senses and said, I'm going to go back to my father. That's why God brings discipline into our lives. And many times it's just God taking his hands off us and say, if that's what you want, you can have it. Until you say, I don't want this. And he says, great, come on back. And so God brought correction in their lives. We see that there in verse 2. But notice, but she accepts no correction. Zephaniah goes on and says that Jerusalem doesn't trust in the Lord. It says that she does not trust in the Lord. 
despite the fact that never once in the 1,500-year history of the people, going all the way back to Abraham, if you want to go back another 2,500 years, you can go all the way back to Adam if you want to. But in the 1,500-year history of the Jewish people, when God called Abraham out and unto himself, he never once gave them a reason to stop trusting him. And he's never given you a reason to stop trusting him either, by the way. But never once gave them a reason to stop trusting them, him, and yet they did. He says, she does not trust in the Lord. And choosing instead to trust in these false gods of the surrounding nations. We got a planting season coming up. It's springtime. Let's go offer sacrifice to the goddess of fertility for the land or whatever it might be. They're trusting in other things instead of trusting in the Lord. They were trusting in other things, everything but the Lord. And the Lord calls them out for that. It's part of the reason for the judgment. It says in verse 2, at the end there, she does not draw near to her God. And we know the history of the people of both the northern and the southern kingdom. They drew near to other gods, but the thing that God most wanted for them and the thing that he most wants for you and I is that we would draw near to him, and yet they would not do so. Next, Zephaniah. Remember, it all starts in the heart, and then it begins to show itself in the life. Zephaniah, notice what he does in verse 3. He calls out the greedy and the corrupt leaders of Judah. He says, her officials within her are roaring lions, Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the evening. As roaring lions, they began to act as roaring lions, looking to devour their prey. They're supposed to lead the people, but they began to devour the people. It talks about their judges. Their judges, it seems, were even worse. He calls them evening wolves. Evening was the feeding time of the wolves. When would you like to encounter a wolf? After it's eaten or before it's eaten? Obviously, after it's eaten. And at these judges, they were secretly devouring others for their own gain under the auspices of, yeah, we're meeting out justice. That's what we do. We're judges. But they were only doing it for their own gain. They were corrupt. They were greedy. He goes on in verse 4. He says, her prophets are fickle. So we talked about the officials. We talked about the judges. Now we're talking about the prophets. He says, her prophets are fickle treacherous men her priests profane what is holy and they do violence to the law now these are those the priests and the prophets who were charged with spiritually leading the people of judah leading the people into holiness and instead what's it say they did they profaned that which was holy zephaniah says of the prophets that they were fickle treacherous men that word translated fickle there in the English Standard Version. That's what we have in the English Standard. It's an interesting one. It's translated a whole bunch of different ways, which says that it's a difficult word for uh, the translators to sort of really nail down. The NIV, instead of fickle, it says unprincipled. The New American Standard uses the word reckless. King James uses the word light, and the New King James uses the word insolent or disrespectful. Strong's Concordance, if you're not familiar, Strong's basically gives you uh, either a Hebrew or a Greek definition of how the word is used 
uh, in the scripture and then in its common usage. Strong's Concordance uses the word frothy to define it. Has anyone ever used the word frothy in their lives? Me either. Frothy is a word, it's a real word. It's a word which means light and entertaining, but of little substance. So I get, isn't that like your root beer, it's froth or whatever? No good and you, you want to fill it up. All right, light and entertaining, but of little substance. And he says here that judgment is about, well, we know this, judgment is about to come upon the nation and the spiritual leaders are making jokes. These people, they're minimizing the seriousness of the situation, of what they were charged to do, speak truth to those in their care. That's unprincipled which is the word that is used by one of those versions. That's reckless. Again, the word used by one of those versions. It's insolent. It's disrespectful to the word of God and to the God of the word. And Zephaniah calls these prophets out for doing this. Regarding the priest, he says, they profane what is holy and they do violence to the law. We might say this, they butcher the law, the word of God. Oh, yeah, this is what it means. Oh, really? Well, you're the expert. And they're nowhere near what it means. Either twisting it for themselves or because they're not taking the time to do the homework for themselves. Zechariah calls out the priest for doing those things. And it's one more reason why God's judgment was coming upon his special people, upon the nation and her chief city. So think about this. You have the officials, you have the judges, you have the prophets, you have the priests, you have all of these people that God raised up, and God raises those people up in our lives, all of those people that God raised up and established in some form of responsibility for the con condition of the people in their care, and all of those people failed in that responsibility. Their political leaders failed, their judges failed, their prophets failed, their uh, priests failed. They all abandoned God and his ways that they might go in their own ways. Rather than caring for the people in their charge, spiritually, physically, financially, they instead only cared for themselves and for their own selfish and sinful desires. Everything that they might trust in. And in actuality, everything that God raised up those leaders were people that they were supposed to trust in. That's why God raises up a government to exercise the sword, so to speak, to make sure there's an order in our society. We should be able to trust those that are in our leadership, spiritually, uh, politically, uh, economically, or whatever it might be. But everything that they might trust in, the Jews here, had failed them. And what then remained? Look at verse 5. This is what remains when all of that fails them and will probably fail you. It says, but the Lord, it doesn't say but, it says, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. And so when all else has been, humanly speaking, a disappointment for them, we're reminded that there is one that will never be a disappointment for you and I. When everything else has revealed itself as unjust and unrighteous, there remains, as it says in that verse, the Lord in the midst of her. He's the righteous one, capital R, capital O. He is the, the one 
that does no injustice. And sadly, the privileged people of God tragically abandoned that privileged privilege. And they went after those things which were uh, not fulfilling and could never truly fulfill or satisfy them. And the Lord, the righteous one in their midst, he called to them, and then he disciplined them, and then he sought to draw them, but they would not give heed. And so the Lord then must do, uh, must deliver them over to their sin. He's trying. Hey, discipline, drawing to himself, but they're not listening to him. So the Lord must deliver them over to their sin. He must deliver them over to the consequences of their sin for the purpose of breaking them, for the purpose of bringing them to the end of themselves. So like the prodigal son, he would come to his senses and say, I'm going back to my father. Would it work here in the book of Zephaniah? You'll have to come back next week to find out. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are aware of the fact that we are a privileged people. I think more so even than the, the Jews of old. Lord, you've uh, blessed us with the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, our teacher, our guide, our counselor. You've given us the word. You've given us uh, the ability to learn lessons from other people uh, as we read these Old Testament passages and the teaching of the new. Lord, we are a privileged people. And even as these folks went astray and Discipline needed to be brought on them to bring them back to himself. Lord, we could have that tendency as well. We know that. Lord, we want to be reminded afresh this morning of the need to walk before you in humility, in dependence. We want to be reminded not to take advantage of those that are weaker, that we might raise ourselves up. But again, Lord, to keep our eyes firmly fixed on you, running our race unhindered from anything that might trip us up. And we know that pride and arrogance and selfishness has that effect. So Lord, I'm praying that you would bless your word this morning. It's a long chapter about judgment. But Lord, I pray that each one of us here will be able to apply these things to where we are right now in our walks with you. And that you would be honored because we did. Lord, even if there's just little things forming, that you would root them out of us. For our good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.